0: Well, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word and turning your Bibles to the book of Jude, which is the second to last book in the New Testament. So a simple way to get there would be turn to Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, and Jude is the page right before Revelation begins. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby or even in front of you and you'll find this morning's text on page 1027. Uh, Jude is a book that is a forgotten gem in the New Testament, and to some degree it's understandable because of the way people have treated it throughout church history. Uh, One pastor called it the book that is rarely read. Martin Luther, the great reformer himself, said there's nothing special in it, and New Testament scholars today are in agreement that it is the most neglected book in all of the New Testament. But what we want to do over the next three weeks as we look at these 25 verses in the book of Jude is help us realize why we should read it. Why it has a lot of special truth in it, and why we dare not neglect it because of its richness uh, towards us. And so this morning, we're just going to look at the first four verses of Jude, and so let me get us going by reading our text and and then praying for our time, and we will begin our study. So let us hear now as God speaks to us uh, through His Word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? It withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that Your truth sanctifies us. We thank You that Your Word brings us life. So we pray that You would open our eyes that You would open our minds, that You would open our hearts this morning that we might receive by the Spirit everything that this Word has to say to us. Give us eagerness to repent. Give us humility and faith as we respond to Your Word. Help me to preach as Your Word says I must. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A junior year of my high school education was spent in Bradenton, Florida At a private school called Bradenton Academy. It was an institution that was created to cater to aspiring athletes. And what that meant was we went to school from eight in the morning till noon, so four hours a day, five days a week. And then we went back to our lodgings and had lunch, and then we trained in our respective sport pretty much all afternoon long. And you probably need not be an expert educator to recognize that just four hours a day at Bradenton Academy could never be called a rigorous education and probably the best way to illustrate its lack of rigor was in our history class because it was the favorite class of all the students in our junior year and if you know anything about history it's very rare that you have so many students interested in a history class and the reason why was is because our history teacher seemed terribly uninterested himself in history (laughs) and so what he would do to teach us history is usually show movies to show us about historical events and experiences. So we always enjoyed going to our two-hour history class, the way the block scheduling worked. And so it was in our history class that I first watched this now legendary epic World War II movie, Saving Private Ryan, over the course of a couple mornings. And if you know anything about that movie, it opens up with the Allied forces storming the beaches at Normandy on D-Day. And the opening scene is altogether brutal. It's mesmerizing. It's intense. And it's a scene that sticks with you. At least it did with me. And I remember even in many of the years since, there's this phrase that was uttered, uh, legitimately so by many commanders on the beaches there at Normandy as they're urging their troops. This phrase of, get off the beach. Move, move, move. And unexpectedly throughout the years, I've sometimes heard that echoing in my mind. Girding me up to do battle, if you will. And we come to this book of Jude, this little gem of truth at the end of the New Testament. And like a spiritual commander of God's people, he's coming to us saying, move, 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 fight, fight, fight. Because he knows that the Christian life is one in which that God's people are called to storm hell's gates with God's truth. But many Christians throughout the ages have been stuck on spiritual beaches, needing strength to get up and go, needing courage to take the fight to the enemy. And so Jude is writing this letter, urging us, urging his hearers to fight for the truth. That's the simple theme of these four verses as he reveals his purpose. Fight for God's truth. So I wonder when the last time was that you fought for God's truth. Do you even think that contending for God's truth is a noble thing? Or does it tend to be, as much of our culture today would understand it to be, just a quarrelsome, contentious endeavor that tends to divide people unnecessarily? Because we do live in a Western culture today that's built, erected, this temple to tolerance. And to fight for any sort of absolute truth is to be nothing less than intolerant, and that is the cardinal sin of our culture today. Yet here comes Jude saying, fight for the truth contend for the faith and what he's going to do over these three weeks especially in our text this morning is not only urge us to fight for the truth but tell us why we're supposed to do it and so what we find in these four verses is truth about our author his audience and his aim and what I want then to walk through in our four verses is just three simple truths about God's people who God's people are what God's people need and how God's people live according to Jude so first who God's people are. Look at how verse 1 begins. We find out that the one writing is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So kids, what you want to know about Jude is his name in Greek is actually Judas. But church history is often referred to him as Jude because we often think of Judas as always being linked to that treacherous and traitorous betrayer, of Jesus Christ. And so it was shortened into Jude, and he says that he's a brother of James. And as best we can tell, this is not James, son of Zebedee, a son of thunder, who is one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. This is a brother of James, who you'll find in Galatians is said to be a half-brother of Jesus, who was a pillar and leader at the church in Jerusalem. So what we're peering into, as best we can tell, is a letter from a half-brother of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't Say, does he, right from the outset, hey, you need to listen, because I've seen Jesus for a few decades. I, mean, I slept next to him. I ate breakfast with him in the morning. Hey, he simply says, doesn't he, that I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, which is the favorite title of the apostolic writers referring to their work. They are bondservants, bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And kids, what you want to think about, even always when you read this at the beginning of epistles in the New Testament, is that it reminds us, as you might be growing up and thinking about what you're going to do when you become older or what kind of job you want to pursue, that the Bible tells us true greatness is found in service for Jesus Christ. Much of our day extols leadership, extols influencers. The Bible is after servants. It's the servant-hearted that gets God's smiles. It's the servant-minded that Christ delights to use. It's the servant-souls that the Spirit empowers. And here is Jude saying, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, a servant who simply does the Master's bidding, a servant who simply reveals the Master's truth, a servant who simply exhorts God's people. So that's the author. But what about his audience? What about those who are going to read this book? Well, you'll see in the end of verse 1, he gives us three truths about who God's people are. First, he says, they are chosen. Because he says, to those who are called. Uh, The word is more certain than just this kind of mere invitation. It speaks of selection. It speaks of a summons. Maybe a way to illustrate is if you happen to be a baseball fan, it seems like inevitably sometimes towards the end of the game, maybe a manager in a dugout or a bench coach in the dugout picks up the phone in the dugout and makes a call to the bullpen. Says, hey, we need to get so-and-so reliever up to warm up. Uh, The point is, is that's not just an invitation to the reliever. Hey, if you want to, if you're in the mood right now, hey, can you get up and start warming up your arm because we may need you to come in soon. No, it's a called it commands him get up. And in the same way the call in Jesus Christ is a sovereign call and command, come to me, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we are doing or anything we will do. We read it earlier, didn't we, from 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. He called us according to his own purpose and grace, not because of anything we have done. God's people are chosen. Secondly, they are loved because the verse tells us that they're also beloved in God, the Father. We, we try as much as we can, you know, when we're home at, with our children during dinner time to catechize them with our normal denominations kids catechism. It's Pretty expansive if you know how it works. It covers many, many questions of simple, essential truths of our faith. And I have added to that throughout the years what I call Daddy's Catechism. (laughs) Daddy's Catechism has one question. Daddy's Catechism has a one-word answer. Daddy's Catechism can be answered from when they can learn to talk. Daddy's Catechism is one that tends to come almost every night when they're younger, when they're going to bed. And it simply says this, who loves you? daddy because from the earliest age i want them to know daddy loves you and there's a sense in which in the christian life so often we struggle to recognize we are beloved in god the father you might be in a place where you're struggling in your spiritual life today feeling that god has forgotten you the weariness of life has so beaten you down that you wonder if anyone is actually for you and here is jude coming along and saying not only are you called and chosen You are loved by the Father, not because of anything you've done, but because he has loved you from eternity past. God's people are chosen. God's people are loved. They're also preserved. You see how verse 1 ends? They're kept for Jesus Christ. And if you wanted to underline this word kept, it's one of Jude's favorite words, because here he tells us right at the greeting that we are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, flip ahead to verse 21. Towards the end of the letter, Lord willing, we'll get here in two weeks' time, he commands his audience to keep themselves in the love of God. And then verse 24, it comes back, doesn't it? In the doxology, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. It's reminding us here from the outset that God's grace is active in the life of God's people. He will keep you. So therefore, keep yourself in the love of God, but never forget He's able to keep you until the very end. This is who God's people are. They're called, they're loved, they are kept. If you are a Christian here today, this is how you became a Christian. This is how you will stay a Christian. That he has chosen you, that he loves you, that he's preserving you for the day of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, what you need to recognize is Jude may be saying that all Christians are servants of Jesus Christ. But the Bible also says everyone in this world is a servant of either one or two masters. The Savior or sin. The kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. That in your sin, Jude's going to later on reveal next week in our text that servants of sin, servants of darkness, what they deserve and what they get is eternal judgment and damnation for their repentance or lack of repentance and unbelief. And so through His Word and Spirit, What we find in this little greeting is a call to you to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Knowing there's nothing you can do to earn His favor. Yet His sovereign grace means He delights to give it to those whom He wills. If you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, what you can know today, maybe for the first time, is the Father will love you and the Father will keep you unto the very end. This is who God's people are. And now in verse 2, he tells us what God's people need because it gives us this triad of spiritual fruit. Notice his prayer of verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now kids, you might be thinking about things that you want to do throughout this summer. Maybe coming up a list of what you want to accomplish this summer. Maybe you can add to that list growing in Mercy, peace, and love. Maybe you have someone in your life that's often asking you, hey, how can I pray for you this week? Because I surely do hope you have at least one person that's asking you that. And maybe you're sometimes grasping for how you can have any sort of prayer request uttered other than, hey, just give me strength amidst the busyness of my life. May mercy, peace, and love. Be multiplied to me because we don't have to grasp for why Jude thinks these three fruits are necessary for his readers. We can understand. It wouldn't take us long to know why Christians need to have these three fruits. But he tells us, first of all, that we need mercy in order to be a welcoming church. Because skip ahead to verse 22 and 23. He later on is going to command the church, have mercy on those who doubt. And then in verse 23 he says that we're to snatch them out of the fire and show mercy with fear to others. An experience of God's mercy is necessary if we're ever going to extend mercy to others. And we need peace in order to be a unifying church. Because you'll notice what he says in verse 16. He talks about the false teachers that he's getting ready to war against in verse 4. He says in verse 16, they are grumblers and malcontents, showing favoritism to gain advantage. They're disturbers of the peace. What we need is God's peace in order to be a people who dwell in harmony and unity with one another. And he says we also need love in order to be a selfless church, because you'll see that in verse 12. He's using all these allusions that will work out next week. He's using all of these texts that seem to speak of Jewish understandings of the Old Testament and even Jewish apocryphal literature. And he talks about in verse 12, these hidden reefs, the false teachers at your love feasts, that they are shepherds feeding themselves, their only interest in self-centered gain, their only interest is pursuing their own ambitions and end, and it's disrupting the church. And so in order to be a selfless congregation that's humble, putting off any sort of self-centeredness and self-righteousness, we need love, is what Jude says. So this is what God's people need, mercy, peace, and love. And now what he does in verses 3 through 4 is give us his purpose. Because like many of the old, I'm sorry, the New Testament writers and the ancient preachers of old, there would always be in the course of their discourse, an introduction that leads to the purpose of their message, and then they relay the message. And what he does in verse 3 through 4 is give us the reason for why he is writing. It shows us how God's people live. I think it was several months ago now, maybe a few weeks ago, depending on how, accurate my time recollection is that I remember uh, one day being particularly uh, good in terms of closeness with Christ and walking in the spirit and so you went to bed I went to bed uh, very eager for the next day woke up early and was was getting ready for prayer time read the Bible you know sweet communion with Jesus Christ it was going to be a great day then I opened my email and saw an email that said no this isn't going to be one of those days of contemplating Christ's glory it's going to be a time for contending for truth. And many of you probably know what that might feel like. You wake up in the morning and it feels as though today's going to be a bright sunny day, basking in the glory of Jesus Christ, and then life comes. And it becomes much harder. You go into the office thinking you're going to be able to get much accomplished, and all you do is have difficulty with coworkers throughout the day. Or after a good day at work, you come home and are eager to be with your family and realize that you're coming into what was a difficult day at home. And you're trying to bring peace amidst the chaos. Your expectation turns out totally different. And that's what happened with Jude as he even sat down to write this. Because notice what he says in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So his word here of very eager, is one that is more literally where we get our English word for speedy. That's why, depending on your translation in front of you, it may say, make haste. I was making haste. I was in a hurry to write to you about our common salvation. So, students, common salvation is not just ordinary salvation. It's the shared salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And like an Olympic sprinter is always in haste to get to the finish line. Here is Jude saying, I was in a hurry to talk about our shared Life in Jesus Christ. And even before we kind of get to his urging call, uh, what you want to notice is maybe a point of challenge and even exhortation from Jude's example. When was the last time you were in a haste to talk with a brother and sister in Christ about your shared salvation? When was the last time you woke up on the Lord's Day morning eager to go fellowship with God's people, sharing in the common salvation, going to a small group setting, eager to talk most about your shared life in Jesus Christ. I'm sure it's true if many of us are honest with ourselves, often when we get together with other Christians, we're in a hurry to talk about anything but our shared life in Jesus Christ. In a hurry to talk about the latest sports events, politics, matters going on in current culture. And all of that's okay, but it dare not push away our hurry and haste to talk about Jesus with other people. And so he says, instead of that, he found it necessary to write appealing to you. This word appealing it can be translated as begging, imploring. It's used often throughout the New Testament and strikingly multiple times in the Gospels to picture these people that come before Jesus. So think Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A leopard comes before Jesus and is imploring him, is appealing Jesus. If you will, please make me clean. And it's as though Jude here on his hands and knees urging the congregation to whom he is writing, imploring them, begging them to contend for the faith. And we'll come back to the latter part of verse 3 in a minute. For now, I want to just simply ask the question of why is he so earnest that they contend for the faith? Why is he imploring them? It's time to fight for the truth. Well, look at what he says in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And what he's going to do in the remainder of verse 4 is he has four marks of false teachers. But what you need to see first of all, maybe we'll make it a fifth mark, is they crept in unnoticed. It's the language of infiltration. It's the language of sedition. It's the language of sidling up silently like a serpent snake in order to divide, in order to bring harm to the people. And here's why you need to understand it in the course of the next few weeks in Jude. He's going to say, contend for the faith, fight for the truth, Inside the church. So oftentimes we think of such actions as defending it outside the church. But he's saying people have crept inside the church. And it's against that falsehood inside the church that you're to contend with. If you know anything about the New Testament, you know that this threat of false teaching, this threat of false leaders, this threat of ungodly influencers is the main threat to the New Covenant church from the beginning to the end of the New Testament. It's from inside that churches tend to implode. It's from inside that churches tend to divide. It's from inside that churches tend to follow into false teaching. And so he's saying inside, not outside, inside, war and fight, the good fight of faith. Because notice what he says has crept into the church. First of all, he's talking about these false teachers saying that their condemnation was predicted. He says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They were designated there is literally written down for this condemnation, which essentially means they were predicted. Or you can turn to a number of places. You can think of 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Peter chapter 2, that's predicting in the end times, of which we are living the last days of the church, false teachers will creep into the church to lead people astray. And what's not only just helpful to know is that they've been predicted, is that their condemnation is assured. Do you see that? They will lose in the end. Truth will win. Christ has the victory. Their condemnation is predicted. Number two, they have no interest in sanctification. You see the simple phrase, two words in my ESV, they are ungodly people. They have no taste for the Lord, no interest in holiness, bitterness, or godliness is bitter to them. And students, I wonder if you know that Influencers and leaders in the church can actually not be godly. That so often, this is what happens with false teachers. They sidle up and appear godly. Yet altogether, they just throw knives behind your back when you're not looking. And So when you're going into a church, maybe eventually moving away from your home somewhat soon, pursuing a congregation that you might join, you ought to pay attention, as Jude's going to show us, to the lives of these leaders simply thinking maybe in light of verse 2, is mercy, peace, and love the normal triumvirate of their spirit before the Lord and in the church. They have no taste for godliness, he says. Number three, they teach a perversion of grace. Do you see that as the text continues? They creep in, perverting the grace of our God into sensuality. This is something we see even as far back as the book of Romans. Romans 6, verse 1, where he just expounded the grace of God, and so he anticipates this objection the Apostle Paul does. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Throughout the centuries, even as recently as the last decade in our Presbyterian church in America, there has been debate over this matter. How is the nature of grace compelling the necessity of holiness and godliness? For these false teachers, grace was little more than liberation to sin. When in reality, biblical grace is liberation from sin. Maybe a text to keep in mind is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness. But they're saying, hey, go do whatever you want. Sensuality normally refers to sexual sin, but it can be more encompassing of just a broader list of lusts that sinful people pursue along the way. They're saying, hey, God's grace abounds. His mercy will forgive you. Don't worry about it too much. Go just go, do what you want to do. God's blood, Christ's blood, is going to cover all of your sin. And what? Of course, Jude is saying that's nothing less than a perversion. You could also translate it as mutation of God's grace. It's possible to preach grace in a way that perverts its very character. It's possible to preach mercy In such a way that makes it a mutation of what it really is. And that's what these false teachers are doing. Giving God's people a license to do whatever they want. Which leads of course then to the fourth mark that he mentions. Their rejection in following Christ. He says they deny our only master and Lord. Jesus Christ. You could even go back later today if you wanted. It's a good Sabbath afternoon exercise. Just meditate at the end of verse 4. What it tells us about the truth of who Jesus is. He is our master and he is our Lord. And these false teachers want nothing to do with him. They don't just distort Christ's grace. They have no reason to submit to his authority, rejecting it outright. There's no reason that they would ever then call people to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus Christ. So this is what the false teachers were doing. This is what the false teachers were saying. This is why he is on hands and knees. If you were begging the church, fight for the truth against this falsehood that is affecting you. Our kids have recently gotten to this 1980s animated film that some of you might remember called An American Tale. It's about this mouse named Fivel, who comes from Russia to America. And the reason for the departure from the motherland of Russia to the land of America is there's cats who destroyed their home in Russia. And our kids probably like the movie for as much as anything, this song that happens early on in the story, There Are No Cats in America. And so they kind of sing forth in a really rousing number. There are no cats in America. The streets are paved with cheese. There are no cats in America. So set your mind at ease. And if you know the story, eventually they get to America and what do they find out? There are cats in America that they must too struggle against. Here's why I say that the danger and threat of false teaching is not something uniquely located in the first century church. It still is a threat today, a struggle that we have to fight against today. In our churches. So Judas here to say, contend for the faith once and for all, deliver to the saints, fight for God's truth. And so what I want to do as we begin to close is just pull out two simple truths from the end of verse 3. What it tells us about a people who are fighting for God's truth, what they must have in order to fight for God's truth. Number one, they must have a growing urgency in the truth. Because notice how verse three continues. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Uh, That word, contend, it's a military term. It pictures athletic competition. It more pointedly means agonize from. And so it pictures this idea of of two wrestlers, kids, you can think about it, or Olympic wrestlers pulling and pushing and grappling and holding. And that kind of earnest contending, that kind of exhausting fighting, is what he says is necessary to keep the truth pure and holy in God's church. There is an expected agony to gospel ministry. There is an expected difficulty to gospel ministry. This is no holiday in the park that we are fighting for in our life in Jesus Christ. It's contending. So some of you in here this morning, I know, are thinking about and are pursuing life as a gospel minister. Maybe you and your spouse are praying through life in service of the gospel ministry. You want to know that the expectation of the New Testament for all ministers is that their ministry is going to be little more than an agonizing for Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 says, Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Jesus Christ. He says, for this I toil. It's the same word. For this I agonize in Jesus Christ. There is a nature of our life in Christ that means, yeah, we probably will often be weary. We probably will often be exhausted as we are wanting to exalt and enjoy Jesus Christ together. And I guess I'm simply trying to encourage you this morning, you should expect that. And you can sustain yourself through it as mercy, peace, and love are multiplied to you. There is an urgency required in churches who fight for the truth. There's a growing urgency with the truth, but also there's a growing knowledge of the truth. You see how verse 3 ends. We contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's not we contend for our faith. It's not we contend for a faith. It's we contend for the faith. Once and for all, completed and final, delivered to the pastors, to the preachers, to the Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, officers, to the saints, to all of you in Jesus Christ. This is not something that just belongs to vocational ministers or seminary-equipped church members. It belongs to all of God's people, teenager, child, adult alike, contending for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So a growing knowledge of the truth is necessary if you're ever going to be able to fight for the truth. And I've been in churches long enough to know that Christians in our context can often give you very careful and precise creedal definitions of theology, yet find it very difficult to say why they believe that biblically. Jesus Christ is our only master and Lord. God, a very God from eternity past became man that he might save sinners like you and me. Well, what verse will we attach that truth to? I want to consider or urge you to consider Is there a biblical foundation underneath your understanding of the truth? Or maybe in ways you've not recognized, It's just by osmosis, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not the greatest thing, that you have received this truth, wanting to understand why you actually believe what you believe, because it's only when you begin to understand why you believe what you believe that you can actually contend for the faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. So how are we going to agonize for the faith? How are we going to increase in our knowledge of the faith? I think that's why we need to root our minds here at the very end, just back in verse 2. What is necessary for us to be strong? What is necessary for us to be equipped? Mercy, peace, and love multiplied to God's people. It's only when we are contemplating the depths of Jesus Christ that then we can begin to contend for the truth of Jesus Christ. It's only those who are increasing in mercy, peace, and love that will ever fight for the truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank You that Your Word is truth, that Christ is worthy of our effort, that Christ is worthy of all of our time and attention, our striving and fighting the good faith, and so we pray that You would indeed strengthen us by the Spirit and in Jesus Christ, to fight the faith or the good fight of faith you have called us to in Christ Jesus, that we would indeed take hold of the eternal life that has been offered to us and granted to us in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, we might be renewed in strength to labor and to minister for the cause of Christ in our midst, that we would grow in love and unity and peace, happiness and holiness before you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.